Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. All right, everybody, welcome back to part two of this RGS series. My guest is always throughout this uh, series is Nick B. Miller. Nick, welcome back. Yeah. Hey, Nick, good to be with you again. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but I got a pretty good response from the, the first, the intro to the, the series that we're doing uh, that we put out last month. I got a pretty good response from a lot of people. I don't know what kind of feedback you got from, from everybody, but there's a lot of excited people on my end. Yeah, no, I'd say the same thing. I mean, both just from, from colleagues and members and, and friends and family too, Nick. I mean, I think folks um, seemed really excited about it and um, seemed like it got kind of picked up and listened to by a lot of different folks. And uh, I think it went well and it was, it was so fun. Let's do it again. Yeah. But, uh, no, I really appreciate you kind of uh, having us on again to move forward with all this. And uh, I think it's a lot of fun and, and really great. Yeah. You know, we have a, a, a nice list of topics and, and discussions that we're going to be coming down the pipe with this series. Uh, but, you know, I thought something that me and you were on the same page with that we both thought was important was to go ahead and start off on the right foot with definitions of common terms, the players in the game, everything that kind of encompasses what we're going to be talking about over the next few months in this series. We wanted to give just a quick kind of synopsis of those terms and what they actually mean. So people don't have to like stop and go look them up to follow along what we're doing. That sounds great, Nick. And I think as someone who's a forester and kind of a silviculture nerd, uh, I think that, you know, <laughs> we as kind of sciencey conservation people uh, sometimes struggle with kind of um, describing some of our work to kind of non-technical audiences. Yes. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll do the best I can to kind of think <laughs> about some of these definitions and terms, just thinking about, you know, maybe general member of the public or, or listener on the call, but also uh, help kind of rein me in and, uh, and uh, seek additional clarification uh, as yeah. needed, man. Absolutely. So, I mean, we know that this one isn't really the, the sexiest of topics like we're going to get to, uh, but it is important nonetheless. And that's kind of what my job is, is to kind of keep you grounded so you don't get up into the into the technical cloud, so to speak, with everybody, right? So, uh, right. Sounds good. Is there really anywhere else to start other than the players in the game, all the NGOs and government agencies? Is there really anywhere else to start besides that? No, that sounds good to me. So go ahead and give us a breakdown. Like, who are we dealing with? All the players in the game and and the different types of land and everything that we're going to be discussing. Yeah, sure, that sounds good. So I guess like um, 
you know, broadly speaking in terms of, um, you know, this translates both from the different types of forest land ownerships that we work with on habitat and forestry projects, but also the types of kind of partners that we just work with on um, different types of, of, of our different types of projects, different types of our efforts. You know, it's kind of private, state and federal. Right. And private, you could kind of break into, you know, NGOs or nonprofit organizations or non-governmental organizations, or you could break into kind of private, private industry and private companies. And so kind of in the NGO uh, nonprofit space, um, we work really with a lot of different groups in a lot of different ways. And, you know, part of that kind of focus of our new model of working forests is really kind of building out um, and taking to the next level some of the existing partnerships that we had with other conservation organizations over the years, but also build new partnerships, identify new kind of strategic opportunities to work together with like-minded groups to really be able to do more together than than any of our organizations could kind of on their own. And so, you know, right now uh, here in the Southern Appalachians, we've got really strong relationships and partnerships with a lot of other conservation organizations, um, including kind of the more, um, you know, very similar kind of game species, conservation orgs, like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, like Quail Forever and Pheasant Forever, like National Wild Turkey Federation, um, but also just kind of more broadly um, forest conservation organizations uh, and wildlife conservation organizations, um, such as the Appalachian Mountains Joint Venture, uh, the American Bird Conservancy, um, Audubon in some states, um, the Nature Conservancy, and other more kind of local or state level groups too, like the uh, like the Tennessee Wildlife Federation is a you know, really strong partner of ours in Tennessee as well. Um, I guess the last on kind of the NGO nonprofit side would be, you know, universities. Uh, many universities are structured as nonprofits. And primarily when it comes to kind of disseminating information or working together on different kind of wildlife monitoring, um, we work really closely with a lot of the, the land grant universities and smaller you know, colleges and universities as well. Well, real quick before we move on to the government agencies on this, uh, I actually got a listener question from the last one. I wasn't really planning on bringing it up on this one, but it's just it's going right into the topic. Is is he was curious how much interaction do the NGOs have between each other? Like, is there? It I guess really how he was playing. Uh, asking the question was why is there a need to have so many different specialty groups and organizations? Why can't everybody just get on the same page and like do the, the bigger goals? So like his, he, he was wondering how much communication and discussion do you guys have between NGOs uh, to actually put habitat? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really great question, Nick. Thanks for asking it. And I think something that we talk about a lot, in conservation is really the need to kind of break down the silos between our different organizations and really just work more effectively together. And so I'll give you some examples of that. So um, we right now um, in Tennessee and Kentucky are managing a pretty big um, multi-year, multi-partner, multi-state 
um, forest restoration and uh, habitat restoration project. So it's funded through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which is a private foundation that administers both federal and private funds. So they're funding Rough Grouse Society, but we're working with like 10 to 15 different organizations and agencies on that project, um, including some of those ones I just mentioned um, and all the state agencies and federal partners as well. And we are kind of through that, that grant and that funding source administering other funding to other partners through sub-awards to help support some of their staff and some of their efforts to be involved in the project, to help you know move things forward um, in a really collaborative, um, effective way. And so I just hosted our quarterly call for that group this morning, which had um, you know a lot of these these entities I just mentioned: TNC, the Appalachian Mountains Joint Venture, the state agencies, the U.S. Forest Service. We're all on that call and, and we're having quarterly calls to really check in about project activities, about progress, about timelines, about budgets um, to really work effectively together as a group. And so we've got we've got a few other iterations of those, of these kind of multi-partner, multi-state, multi-year um, projects um, that kind of gel everything together. But um, I guess I'll say kind of beyond just kind of individual funded projects. Um, you're totally right. Like there, there's a need for all of our organizations and all of our agencies to really, um, you know, be true to our own missions, but really recognize that our missions often really overlap a lot Yeah, <laughs> and that sometimes kind of the silos that we put ourselves in or the camps we put ourselves in can actually be really counterproductive just to be able to get the habitat on the ground and get more work moving forward. So, so we're, we're actively trying to break down those silos and work with a lot of different folks. And I'll tell you this, that can be as kind of informal as just kind of handshake agreements of working together or working through these funded projects or with a lot of our partners, we have actual formal uh, MOUs, memorandums of understanding that kind of lay out how we work together. Um, we have quarterly calls with them to check in about progress um, an example of that, Nick, is with the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. So we have a national kind of overarching MOU with uh, CSF, with Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, to collaborate with them on policy work and on some advocacy work and some communication work. And, um, you know, we're checking in regularly with them about progress on that and how we can better realize that MOU to serve each other's kind of mutual interests. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And man, I had like 500 questions come up into my, my brain during all that, but we're going to move on <laughs> because I know that, I mean, the topics that we have coming down the map, like all this is going to come back up and we're going to be able to kind of discuss this in more detail and, and more thoroughly. But I, w I want to make sure that we stay on track with this episode. So, you know, go ahead. You mentioned a, a number of those government agencies just then. Yeah. Uh, the, the Forest Service, you know, kind of expand on that. Talk about the big players and, and who we need to mention in this. So everybody's kind of familiar with who outside of NGOs are, we're dealing with on a, on a regular basis. Yep. Yeah, that sounds great, Nick. So. Um, yeah, so on the state level, you know, we're primarily working with um, state wildlife agencies and state forestry agencies, right? So every state has a forestry agency and a wildlife agency. In Tennessee, it's the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency um, and the Tennessee Division of Forestry. Um, and so 
those agencies both have their own state level wildlife action plans and their own state level forest action plans. And one of our primary roles as a conservation partner is to help those agencies implement the objectives from their state level action plans. So that's one of our big goals with them. Um, on the federal side, um, at least here in the Southern Appalachians, we're primarily working with uh, the U.S. Forest Service and also the Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS. And so those are the two major USDA um, federal agencies um, that, that kind of work in our region. Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't, doesn't really have any land in the Southern Appalachians, um, so we coordinate with them on a couple of projects. But when it comes to actual habitat work, we have a pretty large national forest ownership here in the Southern Appalachians, right? Um, and these are multiple-use forests that are managed for diverse goods and services, uh, including you know, wildlife habitat and forest health. And so um, that's kind of where we're working with them largely is to help them with their capacity to get more work done on their national forest lands that they own and manage. Um, NRCS is interesting because they uh, are a private lands focused federal agency. So their role is to provide technical and financial assistance to both agricultural producers um, and forest products producers. So forest landowners, uh, private forest landowners. Yeah. I've actually used them myself uh, here on my private property with equip funding and, and habitat yep. management. So for private lands like that's that's probably the first place to go check if you have private lands and then, you know, obviously talk to the biologists and stuff uh, and get a plan going. But I'm familiar with them. I, I, I like them so far. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Glad you've had a good experience. Yeah. Um, and then just, Nick, the last thing I'll mention kind of on different players is, uh, you know, kind of the private, more private industrial side of things. And so uh, we've got kind of forest industry, um, be it kind of, you know, um, saw, um, saw timber, sawmills uh, or pulpwood mills um, that we work with kind of on the um, supply chain side and on project development and implementation of different habitat work. Um, and then we also have a decent amount of actual uh, industrial ownership in the Southern Appalachians, uh, primarily in kind of eastern Kentucky um, and some in southwest Virginia. So these are uh, kind of timberland investment organizations um, that manage land as a uh, financial investment. Um, but also there's some potential for partnering with them to help focus some of their management kind of on habitat projects in the right places, too. Well, let's move on into some of the other like types of funding agreements, uh, arrangements to really kind of get some projects up and going, you know, your grants, your stewardship uh, agreements, stuff like that, you know, kind of give us a quick checkbox and uh, you can keep this one light because we are going to have an entire episode on grants and stewardships. Just keeping it kind of light. Um Part of what we do kind of under the umbrella of the new model as forest conservation directors is we're kind of the we're kind of the network architects of our regions. Right. And so for me, it's the southern Appalachian region, the mountain regions of, of six states uh, down here. Um, and part of what I do kind of on the project development, business development side is I pursue 
different partnerships and funding sources to support our program and to hire more foresters to go create more habitat. And so that includes kind of state and federal grants. Um, it includes uh, utilizing chapter funds on different projects. It includes using timber sale receipts from things like our stewardship projects. It includes kind of, um, you know, forestry and wildlife agreements uh, through NRCS, um, allocated through Farm Bill funding. Um, other kind of direct innovative agreements um, and also things like private foundation funding. And so, you know, generally we kind of put those things into the realm of kind of grants and agreements when it comes to some of our funding. And so grants are usually things that we apply for uh, on a competitive basis, either federal grants or private grants, usually from foundations. And so we'll work on proposals with other partners to apply for funding, support some of our programming and some of our habitat projects. But then we'll also enter into agreements which are really less restrictive, um, aren't usually part of a competitive proposal process, and are really direct kind of funding opportunities negotiated uh, between us and a funding partner, um, really where there's kind of a mutual interest and mutual benefit of kind of working together. So uh, I know that's a big, heavy topic. Uh, you know, everybody there... Anybody listening that's not technical, like you just said, I guarantee you they're, they're, they have more questions now than answers. And and don't worry, we are <laughs> going to be talking about this in more detail and kind of explain how, how that kind of in, interacts and what it looks like at the end result, as as well as uh, some of the questions that other people have on, on do you really – need to have stewardship agreements, right? You know, we're, we're going to cover it from both angles on that, but I think it's important to, uh, before we start wrapping this up is talk about some of the, the terminology that we actually use for the habitat cuts, right? You know, the, uh, the shelter wood, I think is, is one that you kind of clued me into recently. Is there anything like that that would help somebody just listening to this maybe for the first time kind of track a little bit more with what kind of habitat work that we're trying to get on the ground? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the number one thing that we're trying to do is really to increase um, the proportions of young and open forest on the landscape, right? Um, primarily for rough grass, it's really that young forest um, condition that's that's lacking at large scales, large landscape scales. Um and so, you know, we know that cutting trees creates young forest habitat from kind of a forestry or silviculture perspective, you know, there can be a difference on kind of how you get there. And so, you know, I'm a forester, I'm also a silviculture nerd, so this stuff kind of excites <laughs> me. <laughs> but, you know, there's basically like two primary ways to create young forests. There's kind of the, the clear cut method and then the shelter wood method as being the two primary, what we call kind of even-aged regeneration treatments. And so a clear cut is a legitimate silvicultural practice where, you know, you do a full harvest where you remove all stems, primarily with the goal of establishing kind of a new age class of trees that develop post-harvest. Uh, shelter wood is similar, um, but is usually a series of partial cuttings that then get you to that 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 phase of establishing that new age class of trees um and is really one of the kind of best courses of actions we have for oak 
management for managing oak trees. And so I'll just give you kind of two examples of what um, different forms of a shelterwood treatment look like. Um, but it's always kind of a multi-stage process of some sort. Um, there's one example would be like the shelterwood burn technique where you might go into a stand. Um, you might not have as much oak on the site to begin with in the sub canopy that you want to have in that stand in the future. So you might cut 50% of the stand with your first entry. You might run fire through that stand several times until you help get oak trees established, oak seedlings established. And then you might come back in about five years after you run some fire through it, when you have a nice carpet of oak regeneration in the understory, and you might then remove that entire overstory to really release um, release that oak that's established and create that young forest habitat. And so, you know, when we think about creating kind of young forest for rough grouse, it's also an opportunity to create young forest, but also to create high quality young forest that manages for uh, the crop trees and the mass producing trees um, that we want to regenerate both for wildlife, but also for timber production. Right. Man, it, yeah, and once again, I'm I'm ignoring a bunch of questions uh, to stay on topic <laughs> on this time, but I know that we're going to cover each one of these things in detail, so uh, I'm excited to get to it. But is is there anything else that you th think we'd be remiss to not kind of call out and define for somebody to kind of just just help them <clears throat> along through this series? Um, yeah, that's a good question, Nick. I and mean, I think the other big one is just um, you know stewardship. And so there's a lot of um, different ways that that word is used. Um, shared stewardship is, is like a broad um, federal USDA strategy, basically for working across boundaries and agencies and organizations to get more work done. Stewardship authority is actually kind of a authority that the U.S. Forest Service has. Um, that was authorized to them in the 2014 Farm Bill. And that gives them the ability to enter into stewardship contracts or stewardship agreements uh, with organizations like, like RGS. And then there's like stewardship agreements, which is really kind of this unique agreement between the Forest Service and a third-party conservation partner such as RGS um, based on kind of that mutual interest and mutual benefit of working together to get more work done. And so we can dive more into that when we kind of get into stewardship explicitly. Um, but I think there's probably, you know, it's, it's some of the stuff is always complicated when you're working with the federal government <laughs> yep. and, uh, there's a lot of different ways that that term is kind of used. So, well, and that, and that perfectly leads into the next episode that'll be coming out next month to where we're going to discuss everything the the pros cons the differences between state versus federal versus private lands because each one kind of is a is a different can of worms for you and the and the uphill battle it seems like in some cases on getting the habitat on the ground so that these birds have a have a fighting chance down here uh nick i appreciate you taking the time out of your day sharing this stuff i know this wasn't the sexiest of topics but i think we needed to cover <laughs> it and I, i'm excited to really kind of hit on each one of these different topics and, and really start getting into some of this fun fun information Absolutely, Nick. Yeah, I hope that wasn't too uh, 
technical or that I uh, stayed focused on just definitions. I might have veered a little bit uh, down some rabbit holes, but no, I appreciate it too. I hope this helps set the stage. Absolutely. And listeners, you know, if, if we didn't cover something uh, on this one, be sure to li- listen for the next uh, round, like the actual topics when we break this all down. Hopefully it makes more sense. But if you have any questions, uh, comments, be sure to shoot them to me, gundogityourself at gmail.com. And Nick, until next time, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to GDIY. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again, and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.